Revelation 17 tonight, we have a daunting task. We are going to attempt to get through two and a half chapters tonight. But we're not going to go verse by verse. And the reason we're able to do this tonight is because all that we've covered up to this point in the book of Revelation, really the only thing left is the second coming of Christ. And we're going to talk about that next week. One of my favorite passages to to teach on. And then, like I said, then we talk about the glories of eternity for us who know Christ the following week. But for tonight, God then sort of stops for a moment and wants to introduce us to something important that He thinks that we should know. Something that really has been going on almost for all of history, but is moving in a sense, more forward as history goes on and we see it all coming into place. We're introduced, if you will, to sort of a new character. Although this new character, she's not a person. She is a system, if you will. She is an entity. And she is embodied in sort of a a headquarters, if you will, And that's why she is referred to in chapters 17 and 18 as a city. Okay? Now, I know we have a lot to try to digest tonight. And I'm not going to attempt, like I said, to normally I go through verse by verse. But I do think it's important tonight that we touch on it. And so I'm going to try to stick to my time limit here and get through this tonight. In Revelation 17, we are introduced to a great prostitute. Verse 1. Who sits on many waters. And then in verse 5, we are introduced to the name of this prostitute, Babylon the Great. In fact, she is called in the Word of God the mother of prostitutes and of detestable things of the earth. And what chapter 17 of Revelation is doing is basically giving us an understanding of who this great prostitute is embodied in the name Babylon. In order to do that, because if we didn't do this, we would have to pretty much go through the entire chapter 17, but I think it's easier, at least it was for me, to gain an understanding, is to remind myself and just go back in your mind for a moment to the book of Genesis. To where, in a sense... Babylon got started, or even the whole name, which comes from the word Babel. And again, I would just encourage you as I throw things out tonight, just take some time maybe to read and study some of this for yourself. But back in Genesis 11, if you remember the story, God says that that the nations of the world were coming together and they were uniting. And in their coming together and uniting, they weren't doing it for good purposes. They were doing it just to cook up more evil. And what one group didn't think of, the other one did. And and so all of this coming together never ended up being something good. It was always something bad. Go back to your high school days. You know, some of those people we all hung around with and we were part of the group and it's like, what one didn't think of, the other one did. 
And if you've heard some of Pastor Jeff's stories of how he was in high school, you know I was probably the ringleader of some of that. But that's the way it was back then. And so God said, here's what I'm going to do. In order to restrain evil a little bit, I'm going to take these people and I'm going to scatter them. And I'm going to give them different languages so that they can't understand each other and they have sort of a, an extra obstacle to get over in order to communicate. Because the more they come together, the more evil they do. And so we believe that God is telling us there that's where we got our different nations and languages from. And he called the place Babel. The word Babel means confusion. Because God said, I confused mankind at that time by giving them different languages that they could not understand. Now I want you to remember that because that's the foundation upon which even Babylon was built. Because Babylon and its spiritual, if you will, idolatry and all that has been promoted from that area of the world really has its foundation all the way back to Babel and confusion. And I, I know I'm not maybe saying this in, in order, but that's part of the, the reason why there's so much confusion today. It's coming from what he's talking about right here in Revelation 17. Why more and more people are confused and they don't really know what they believe or why they believe it. And even within the church, this is part of why it's so important that we have churches like the Oasis that will teach the Word of God and where we emphasize the Word of God and where we're all encouraging each other to get into the Word of God. Because when we do that, we get clarity. Instead of confusion, we get clarity. And a lot of people today are out there, even in the body of Christ as Christians, and they're confused. They, they don't know what to believe. They have no clarity at all in their walk with God. And a lot of that stems from even going all the way back to Genesis and the whole origin of Babel and Babylon. And again, we don't have time to go through the origin of Babylon and all of that, that city, uh, 50 miles, about 50 miles southwest of modern-day Baghdad. And if you remember hearing about it, it was true that even when Saddam Hussein was in his glory, if you will, if you want to call it that, that he did begin to unearth the ancient city of Babylon and wanted to, his desire was to rebuild the actual city. Now, I don't know whether the actual city of Babylon is going to be rebuilt, but I do know this, that based upon Revelation 17, one thing is very clear that God is telling us. What began in the book of Genesis with mankind is, in a sense, being reversed today. Here's what I mean by that. So man came together back in the book of Genesis when mankind was pretty young on the earth, and as they came together and unified... They did it not for good, but for evil. And so God scattered them. He separated them. He gave them different nations, different countries, nationalism and languages, so that that in some way would restrain evil. Now, down through history, what man has tried to do, and one of the things that Revelation 17 is also reminding us of, is that Satan 
And the demonic world is influencing this, okay? Because he talks in Revelation 17 about this great prostitute named Babylon is sitting on the beast. And in a sense, what he's saying there is that Satan, down then through history, ever since Babel, has been supporting this drive now for mankind for three things. A one-world government to come back together, a one-world economy, and a one-world religion. And so all through history, the movement has been what I believe John is talking about here. I believe this is the great prostitute, if you will. The word prostitute here, and most places in the Bible, simply means taking something that God meant for good and twisting it. That's what the word means. So, for instance, where our mind usually goes when we hear the word prostitute, but it doesn't have to be limited to that, is we think of sex. God created sex, and sex is good within the boundaries that God created. But, like even a literal prostitute, they take this wonderful gift called sex, and they twist it, and it becomes something that is evil. Well, I don't want you just to limit it to sex, but what the prostitute is saying is that all the things that God gave mankind to be used for good, that this system that is, in a sense, working behind the scenes to draw men to a one-world government, one-world religion, one-world economy, is twisting all the things that God gave man for good. So, for instance, let's go through. God, the Bible says, gave man government. But government was supposed to be used to bless people and to be used for the good of the people, not, you know, on the backs of people. And yet what has happened over the years by man is that men who, many of them get involved in government, end up getting power hungry, and the power that they have goes to their head, and instead of serving the people, they serve themselves. And so they've twisted, they've prostituted what God meant for good, and now governments, many of them, have become evil and oppressive. We obviously can see that. And the Bible is simply saying that's only going to get worse as we move towards the return of Christ. Uh, God gave the world an economy and, and doesn't say that things in and of themselves are bad. But what has happened over the years in the movement towards even a one-world economy and people getting wealthy and getting rich is exactly what the Bible says. That then people begin to love money and material things more than they do God or anything else. And so the commercialism and, and all that has ended up being more about materialism and greed and all of that than it ever did what it was meant for is that God gave us things and wants to bless us with material things, but in order not just to meet our needs, but to be a blessing to others. So, again, man twisted it. And then, obviously, faith or religion was given by God to be a good thing. But down through history, man has taken religion, if you will, and faith, and twisted it to, to be something that, that is used for a lot of evil in the world. So that's why the word prostitute, if you will, is used in this idea. And so again, I don't want to belabor the point, but that's primarily what Revelation chapter 17 is all about. It is reminding us of that. And, and let me just use this as an illustration. 
we do the same thing. We use terms that are literal places, but they're, they're, they embody more than that. That's what Babylon here, why the name Babylon isn't just talking about some city over there. It's talking about a system. It, it's the same thing that John says in 1 John when he tells Christians, love not the world. He's not telling us not to love people. He's, he's telling us not to love this system that is in place that is basically driving everything towards a one-world economy, a one-world government, a one-world religion, which, by the way, the Antichrist then is going to lay the foundation for that final world empire of which the Antichrist is going to rule and reign during the tribulation period. So, we do the same thing. For instance, when we say Wall Street, Wall Street is a literal street. But it also means much more than just a literal street. It embodies a system. Uh, Madison Avenue is a literal avenue. But when we use that term many times, we're talking about not just the avenue. We're talking about an attitude. We're talking about a lifestyle, if you will. Keep that in mind then when you read and study Revelation chapter 17. When he talks about Babylon and why the great prostitute is named Babylon, it embodies this entire system that we are moving towards. That's why, again, we as Christians, we see it coming. We, we see the one world government coming. We see the one world economy coming as all these nations default and collapse and our own countries down there and the congressmen and the senators and the presidents trying to, you know, keep us from defaulting and, and raising the debt ceiling and all of this. It's just a mess. It's just a mess. And so moving towards the one world, and obviously moving towards a one world religion that is not based on truth, but just based on, can't we just all get along and it doesn't really matter what we believe? And let's just take what we believe out of every world religion and belief system and let's just make up our own, sort of like the old Burger King commercial, have it your way. <laughs> and we even see that in churches today. Can I say? That's why it's very popular in many Christian circles and churches today for there not to be preaching anymore, or really teaching the Word. Let's just all get together in our homes and whatever, and let's just talk about what the Word of God means to us. In fact, that's very big in what's called the emerging church. It's very popular, especially amongst the younger crowd, because they've sort of gotten tired, if you will, of the traditional church. The problem with that is this. When someone like myself, who's called of God, teaches the Word of God, it's not to be what Jeff Royce thinks anyway. See, when we listen to preachers and teachers that God has called, all of us are supposed to be listening to God speak to us. It's not just what man thinks. That's what separates it. That's why God said, through the foolishness of preaching, people are saved. Preaching should never go out of style. Teaching the Word should never go out of style. But again, in the culture and climate spiritually that we're living in, that's why the Bible continues to be decentralized in many churches and in many Christians' lives, and why things like this are gaining popularity. 
Because can't we just sit around and tell each other what we think it means rather than really listening to someone called of God who's actually teaching us and, and we're hearing what God is saying? It's a big difference. So then we move to Revelation 18. In Revelation 18, then, he simply is telling us and reminding us this system in God, from God's perspective has already fallen. He says, After these things I saw another angel who possessed great authority coming down out of heaven, and the earth was lit up by his radiance. I think that's significant. God doesn't waste words. I think the world is in such darkness at this point that this angel comes and lights up the world. He shouted with a powerful voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a lair for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detested beast. For all the nations have fallen from the wine of her immoral passion. You see, Babylon, this system, is going to infect every nation in the world. It's going to affect it in its culture, politically, commercially, and religiously. And that's why the Bible says the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have gotten rich from the power of her sensual behavior. See, one of the things the Bible reminds us of is that, and this is something that we've known in our lifetime and we can see again continuing to get stronger and stronger, is that those who have financial power in the world wield great influence in this world. You have money, you have influence. That's just the way it is. And it's only going to get worse. It's part of that Babylonian system that is totally unbiblical, but has invaded the world today. In fact, I didn't point this out, but in the very last verse of chapter 17, the Bible makes a very important point that this woman that you saw, verse 18, she is the great city that has sovereignty over the kings of the earth. Literally, she holds in her hands the kings of the earth. Think about that. This system that is pushing everything towards a one-world government, one-world religion, and one-world economy is being fueled, you see. And it, underneath of it all really is Satan and a demonic influence. Now, not that men and the kings and the leaders of this earth are not responsible. They are. They make their own choices. But they have gotten deceived and swept up into this. And that's what the world is moving towards. However, as we saw in verse 2 of chapter 18, the city's fall and its system is so certain and imminent, it is described in the Bible as if it has already been accomplished by God. Notice in verse 4, God says to those who were alive at this time, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so you will not take part in her sin, so you will not receive her plagues. Because her sins have piled up all the way to heaven and God has remembered her crimes. There's a pattern in the Bible of warning and rescue before judgment. And that's exactly what God is doing here. Just as he did in Sodom and Gomorrah when he basically used the intercession of Abraham to get Lot and whoever would you know, follow the angels out of Sodom and Gomorrah before judgment fell. He did the same thing with Noah. He gave Noah 120 years to not only build the ark, but to preach that judgment was coming. Anybody that wanted could have got on the ark and been delivered. 
And so God warned, there was rescue, but then judgment came. And God is saying the same thing here. God is saying to us, as He's saying at this point, that we are again in the world, but we are not to be of the world. We are not to buy into this system. Which obviously then implies as Christians, we're going to be like salmon swimming upstream in the world in which we live today. Because predominantly the world is telling us all, we all need to get on board with what's happening here. And if we're not, we're out of step. And so any of us who sort of balk at a one world government, one world economy, or one world religion, we're labeled as intolerant and, you know, yada, yada, yada. It's just not politically correct. And it's going to continue to be more politically incorrect as time goes on. But God said, don't be a part of this. You can be in the world as a witness, but do not be of the world. Do not buy into this philosophy that pervades the world today. Notice in verse 7, as much as she exalted herself and lived in sensual luxury, to this extent give her torment and grief because she said to herself, I rule as queen and am not a widow. I will never experience grief. In other words, The system embodied by all these kings of the earth and all these people who buy into the system basically believe that they are immune to anything bad happening and immune to the judgment that's coming. Nothing's ever going to happen to us. Look at us. We are the wealthiest people on the earth and we have the power and we're in control and all of this. I mean, they're just going to be lifted up in so much pride that they don't think anything's ever going to happen. But notice, verse 8, For this reason she will experience her plagues in a single day. When her judgment finally comes, it will be swift and decisive. Why? Verse 8, Because the Lord God who judges her is powerful. Man thinks he's so strong. Man thinks he creates stuff that's going to last forever and all of this and no one can touch us. We are untouchable. And we even see that today. You know that as well as I do that in my lifetime, when, when people of high stature and power and wealth and influence get arrested, it's almost like they're shocked, like they're above the law, right? I mean, the law can't touch me, right? I can just do whatever I want to do and, and, and all the rules and everything that society is supposed to abide by, that's for all these little people, but we're above that, right? We see that already. And that pervades over the entire world today. We just, we see it in America a little bit, but folks, the Bible says in every nation of the world, that attitude is prevalent. Notice verse nine, the kings of the earth though, who in a sense got into bed with this system, they're going to weep and wail when they see the smoke of her destruction. Why? Well, first of all, not so much because they're mourning the city or the system itself as much as they've lost the self-interest that was invested in that. See, they got rich and they got powerful and they got positioned from this system. And now that the system is gone... What are they to do? That's why they say, whoa, whoa, oh, great city. Babylon, the powerful city. In a single hour, your doom has come. Notice, her destruction is so sudden and so complete. 
The Bible says in verse 11, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn because of her. And then it talks about all the stuff that is bought and sold. I just want to point this out real quickly. Notice the very last two things in verse 13 that are sold. Slaves and human lives. And remember, this book was written a couple of thousand years ago, and yet the Bible in prophetic detail is telling us something that we know is happening in increasing measure all around the world today, and that is human trafficking. That's exactly what the Bible is saying. You see, humans are a commodity today. Do you realize people around the world get rich and have great wealth by selling human beings? And that's exactly what the Bible predicts. It is a lucrative business today in this world. But notice the Bible says in verse 14, all your luxury and splendor has gone from you. And not only that, it will never, ever be found again. This judgment, this destruction is permanent and irreversible. Why? God is destroying this system. This final system that is trying to go back in a sense to the days before God came and, and scattered the nations at Babel because He's going to set up His kingdom. And in order to set up His kingdom, He's got to get rid of this system. And that's what Revelation 17 and 18 is all about. God removing this final system that's in place so that Christ's righteous kingdom can come to the earth. And look at verse 17. In a single hour, such great wealth has been destroyed. How quickly it can all be gone. I mean, can you imagine these, these folks all over the world who this is what their life has been about. This is what they've, this is what they've pursued all their life is to accumulate all this stuff and all this power and all this position. And in one hour, the Bible says, God's going to just cut it all down. It's all going to crumble. And there's not going to be anything left. Pretty sad, isn't it? I mean, to me, one of the things that I think about when I read and study Revelation 17 and 18 is, thank you, God, that we have another foundation to build our lives on. And that we don't have to get caught up in the materialism and godlessness of this world. We have a relationship with God like we sung about tonight. And, and He's the air that we breathe. And, and we can live above this. We don't need to grovel at this, this system that is satanic and that... that there's no joy in this system. There's, there's no peace in this system. There's no love in this system. But there's love, joy, and peace in Jesus Christ. How sad. How utterly hopeless all of this is. And yet, we as Christians can be so thankful that we haven't bought in to that. And hopefully we won't buy in to that. So that's really what the rest of chapter 18 is about. It's not just about the destruction of the system, but how quickly God brings it down. Coming to verse chapter 19. Let's look there for a few moments. After these things, I heard what sounded like the loud voice of a vast throng in heaven. So we go again, as we've done throughout Revelation, we either go to heaven and then back to earth, or we come from earth up to heaven. And that's what we're doing now. It's like, this is, looks really bad, but let's go up to heaven and see another perspective. And the word hallelujah is what they're saying. 
The word hallelujah here is a command. In fact, most times you see the word hallelujah in the Bible, it's a command from God to His people. What does the word hallelujah mean? It means you all praise Jehovah. Now, obviously, literally, it means you all praise Jah. Because the Hebrews would not say the whole name of God, Jehovah. Their, his name was so reverenced and respected that they would not say the entire name. So it was, you all praise Jah. But they knew what Jah meant. It meant Jehovah, the self-existent one. And that's what hallelujah means. And it's a command. You all praise Jehovah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Because His judgments are true and just. You see, the judgments of God here are accurately assessed. They are a testimony to His righteousness. For only He knows the full breadth and depth of the sin which He now judges on the earth. As we talked about last week. And He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality and has avenged the blood of His servants poured out by her own hands. By the way, one of the things that Revelation 19 and also 18 and 17 tells us is this system persecutes Christians and has down through history and will continue to persecute Christians even through the tribulation period. By the way, again, don't forget, the reason why God is pointing this out is that this system is what is not only supported by Satan, but it is this system upon which the Antichrist will ascend through and eventually become top dog of, if you will, during the tribulation period. Then a second time, the crowd shouted, verse 3, Hallelujah! The smoke rises from her forever and ever, and God gains glory by Babylon's destruction. The 24 elders and the four living creatures threw themselves to the ground and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God. By the word, by the way, the word praise means to extol and elevate God. So when God calls us to praise, it's not just a, a singing, it's not just even a heart attitude, it is even within our minds and hearts, it is elevating God, it is putting God where He belongs, in His rightful place. It is not an attitude of trying to bring God down so that I can understand Him, so I can manipulate Him, so I can tell Him what to do for me, you know, create this cosmic Santa Claus that can fulfill all my needs and desires. No, praise is elevating God. And when you and I are growing in our walk with God, one of the things that's just going to be a byproduct of our spiritual growth is learning to elevate God more and more and more. Higher and higher, if you will. That's what the word praise means. Praise our God, all His servants, and all you who fear Him, both the small and the great. See, throughout the Bible, fear of God is actually important in understanding who God is. That's why the book of Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If I do not understand who God is, then I will never reverence and respect Him or follow Him or believe Him or trust Him or anything. It is the beginning of everything. I've got to know who God is. And that's why the book of Revelation is primarily a book that reveals to us who Jesus Christ really is. Because when you and I find out who Jesus really is, and He's our Savior, He's our Deliverer, and He's on our side, and if God is for us, who can be against us? And, and through Christ I can do all things. My goodness, we can live a 
victorious life because of who he is. And that's what God wants to draw us to. Notice the contrast between what's going on on earth, all these people and all that they put their energy and life into, and it's all wasting away and crumbling, and they got nothing to show for it. And in heaven, man, we're having a great time. Because we've invested in different things. We've followed what the Lord said. Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, not treasure on the earth. Then I heard, we'll end with this. What sounded like the voice of a vast throng, like the roar of many waters, verse 6, and like loud crashes of thunder. They were shouting again, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the all-powerful reigns. As the all-powerful God, His purposes are never thwarted, and He can never be frustrated. He is in complete control. Throughout your days ahead, Repeat that phrase every once in a while, that verse to yourself. Hallelujah, the Lord our God, the all-powerful reigns. He reigns. He's in control right now and will be forevermore. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory because the wedding celebration of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. The Bible tells us that the church is the bride of Christ and that Jesus is the bridegroom. And according to Jewish wedding custom, now, finally, when we get to heaven, that wedding, if you will, is going to be consummated in the reception, the party, the celebration follows. You see, in Jewish custom, two fathers would, would draw a covenant or contract between a, a man and a woman very early on. And that contract or covenant could not be broken except by divorce. That's why the Bible says in the Gospels that when Joseph and Mary and Joseph wanted to, you know, get rid of Mary, if you will, because he thought that she was unfaithful. He would have had to give her a bill of divorcement. That's what that betrothal meant. It was a covenant. It was a contract. It was binding. And when you and I accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we enter into a covenant, in a sense, a contract with God. And like in the Jewish wedding then, custom, the bride and the groom, though, don't get together right away, obviously. They go away. And the, the bridegroom goes away to prepare his place so that then he can go and get his bride at some point in the future and bring his bride back to his place that he has prepared for her. It's exactly what Jesus said in John 14. I go and prepare a place for you. But also that whole time while the bridegroom is away preparing the place for the consummation, the bride is to be readying herself too. And that's what our Christian life should be all about, is getting ready for us to stand before our bridegroom and to present ourselves before Him. That's why the Bible says here that for those of us who are in this celebration, that verse 8, we were permitted to be dressed in bright, clean, fine linen, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Don't miss that. Many times as Christians, we talk about the fact that when we accept Christ as our Savior, we are dressed, we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. And that's absolutely biblical. That's absolutely true. But here in this instance, don't miss this, that for this wedding celebration, you and I will also be dressed in a garment that in a sense we created through our Christian life. What doesn't get burned up at the judgment seat of Christ will be what survives and what we are dressed with at this celebration. That's why not all Christians at this celebration will be dressed the same. 
We all get there because we're all clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But at this celebration, the garment we put on is our righteous deeds that we have done, our faithfulness, the lives that we have lived, that in a sense gain reward when we get to glory. Wow. Do you think if every Christian really understood that, that there would be a lot of this complacency and laziness and I'm just glad I'm saved and I'm forgiven, I'm on my way to heaven. I really, it doesn't really matter how I live my Christian life. Really? Do you really understand this? Do you really understand who your God is? Would any bride who's getting ready to get married not take any time at all to get get herself ready? So why do we, the bride of Christ, not even think at all about, I want to make myself presentable to my bridegroom someday. And that you and I as believers have the privilege of standing before the Lord Jesus Christ and presenting the way we have lived to Him. Not so that that got us into heaven, but in a sense as a gift of our love back to Him for what He did for us. Again, going back to Sunday's message, why do we do what we do? Love makes us want to do what at one time we felt we had to do. God doesn't want us to live our lives even in doing righteous, good works because we feel we have to, because we want to, out of our love for Him, for who He is, and for what He's done. So we end with this. The angel then said, write the following, Blessed are those who are invited to the banquet of the wedding celebration of the Lamb. I got to tell you, I can't wait to be there. To stand before Jesus Christ. And you know what else? To stand with you guys. To look around in heaven and see faces that I recognize from here. To be with you at this time. That's going to be special as well. He also said to me, these are the true words of God. So I threw myself down at his feet to worship him. But because he was an angel, he said, don't do this. Angels never accepted worship from a human being. I am only a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony about Jesus. Worship God. And remember what worship meant back in Revelation 4? Worship means centering our life and that God is our center. That's what worship is. Having a center, and God is to be the center of our life. That's true worship. Worship God for the testimony about Jesus is the spirit, literally the primary focus of prophecy. Wow. See, again, that's a a great verse. It teaches us that the book of Revelation is primarily not given to us to satisfy our curiosity about future events. The book of Revelation is primarily a testimony about who Jesus is. And guess what? Next week, we're going to talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ in all of his glory. Finally, Jesus says, I'm coming to set up my kingdom. All the kingdoms of the earth are gone. And now the kingdom of Jesus Christ will come. Folks, I hope you can be here next week. Revelation 19, we'll pick it up in verse 11. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you. Thank you for the hope. Thank you for the... Just the the thoughts 
of what awaits us in glory because we know Jesus Christ is our Savior. And to know that none of us deserved it. It was by Your grace. It was by Your goodness and mercy. And yet, Lord, You not only share with us this relationship, but God, You grant us an eternity of ruling and reigning with You. What a privilege. What what a great thing to look forward to. That as Christians, it's not just about this life. It's about the eternity after this life. And so God, help us. Help us today as Christians to really get serious about being the bride of Christ and preparing ourselves to meet our bridegroom and to stand in His presence one day. Help us to take it seriously, God. And help us also to know, as we've seen tonight, that we are living in a a world system, a philosophy of a world that is totally anti-God and ungodly. It is, it, is, it is driving all the nations of this world to something that is totally against what you're all about. And yet, God, in the midst of all this, you have given us the privilege to live like Esther at such a time as this because you trust us to be light in the world in which we live. To be able to live such a distinct lives that, that those who are so confused and are groping for answers and have no hope and have no love and have no joy and have no peace can look at the way we live and how we live and see that there is something out there worth living for. And it's not just material things that will one day slip through our fingers. There's so much more. God, raise us up here at the Oasis to be a shining example in light of who you really are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.